Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio. With Heifer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876. Our aspirations wrapped up in books. Hello and welcome to Bookmark. This is a show that talks about books and writing with a local slant. And we're looking on this show at genre-defying novels, those books that are hard to classify. And all the novels featured in today's show, ironically, fall into that category. Our featured guest is Ian Hood, talking about his novel, Every Trick in the Book. We'll hear from Sophie White about her novel, Where I End. And Guy Ware will chat about his novel, The Peckham Experiment. Ian, we'll give you a proper introduction in just a moment. First of all, welcome to Bookmark. Great to be here. Thanks a lot, Lee. And genre, would you agree that you both your novels, actually, not just this one, defy categorisation? Yeah, and that was a conscious thought to not write in a particular genre or if I was writing in relationship to genre, then I tend to kind of bend it a little bit and make it flex. But that's just the way I write. I haven't thought in terms of being a genre writer. And are those the kinds of novels that you like to read, genre-bending novels? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I don't think I've ever read my way through 20 crime novels, for example, by the same writer or any of that kind of writing. There's nothing wrong with it, but it's not the way I read. I tend to read literary fiction, biographies, I like biographies, but again, it tends to be of literary people. So, yeah, that's it's not genre, it's like a niche or something. <laughs> that's the niche I'm in. Yeah. And we're going to hear your first choice of music in just a moment. Is music important to you? Yeah, as if anybody listens to the last interview that we did, music is it's almost more important than other books in my writing. I have to get a soundtrack together. I have to write in relationship to music. In the first novel, it was the band from Glasgow, Mogwai. In this one, it's a number of different things that we'll hear today. I think I said to you during the last interview that I know who I character is by if you tell me their 10 favorite albums i know more about them than if they wear purple clothes or whatever it is they do and when you talked about mogwai that was very much uh, they were very much a feature of the last book so from mogwai to your first choice sugar babes mm-hmm. freak like me it might feel an unusual step <laughs> Yeah, um, although the point about Freak Like Me is the story of uh, every trick in the book is about a family. Essentially, we we move from seeing them from the outside to deeper and deeper into their own lives. And um, the family comprises a father, mother and two daughters, one's 15 and one's 10. This is the way I write. I was trying to get into the head of the 10-year-old girl and had to look up who would be on her iPad at that time. The book is set in 2011-2012 And it was Sugar Babes would, would have been a natural choice And, and then, so I started listening to the Sugar Babes as well Now I'm a, a fully signed up <laughs> fan of the Sugar Babes uh, they've, they've just had a great comeback at Glastonbury And the other thing about the Sugar Babes If you followed the career and oeuvre of the Sugar Babes <laughs> Is that there was three young women in the Sugar Babes And then one of them was replaced and then the sugar babes became another sugar babes and then there was a third sugar babes so that in total there's been six members of sugar babes and uh, the daughter Sophie is trying to think through 
who the sugar babes are if the sugar babes keep changing. It was to do with the sort of slipperiness of identity that's one of the central themes of the book. And that was Freak Like Me by the Sugar Babes, the first choice of music on Bookmark today from our featured guest, Ian Hood. Ian's first novel, This Good Book, came out last year. Short story writer Colette Paul said of it, This is a novel about Glasgow, about art and about obsession. This good book will have you gripped from the opening chapter to its disturbing conclusion. Ian Hood is an original new voice in Scottish fiction. His second novel, Every Trick in the Book, was published in September. It explores the issues of surveillance, identity and truth with nods to Virginia Woolf along the way. I very much enjoyed this novel, Ian, and you sort of touched on what it's about without giving too much away. Could you give a little more information for those who haven't read it? Sure. Uh, it's not giving anything away to know that one of the first incidents that happens in the novel is the uncovering by a young freelance journalist of the true identity of the father in the family. And he is one of those undercover police officers who has been embedded in the activist community over the years. And um, again, the book's set 2011-2012, just as the actual police officers were being uncovered. Yes, and some of you say embedded, and some of them had been uh, very much embedded. They'd uh, married, they'd had children all the time working undercover. I'm not sure if any of them got married. In the book, the couple are married, um, have latterly got married, but they've definitely had two children, and um, some of the real undercover officers did have children with their uh, ostensible targets for their surveillance. Part of the method of the book is to drive facts within the actual case to a kind of absurdist level so where an actual tour of duty apparently reading for the background for this of those police officers was about I think the maximum was about four years I have the couple being together for 25 years so. And what was it about this case, those cases that particularly interested you? Most of all, in my writing, I'm intrigued by the idea of identity, how we form our identities and how we express our identities. And that was just a natural gift of something that happened in reality where someone patently has to live a double life and construct a different personality to their own and will sometimes move back into their old personality. So because it suited the theme, it was a natural fit for my kind of writing. But also, I balk at the the word angry about the fact that there were undercover police officers in the activist community. My natural feel for life is that I would be on the side of the activists rather than the side of the police. And also, I do have concerns, but they're more complicated than they're expressed in the book, about the increasing surveillance society we live in and also the sort of... I mean, the most recent issue that's come up is about defunding the police in America. People misunderstand that. They think people, activists in the community, want there to be no police officers, whereas what they're actually talking about is the demilitarisation of the police, you know, get the police out of police cars and spending money on increasingly militaristic um, approaches. In London now, it's not that unusual to see an armed police officer around certain buildings. So the Met and its surveillance, that is a, a big a big theme in the novel, as is London and moving around London and how you're watched. How did you research that? 
the impetus for that initially was actually that's where books do have their effect on me uh, as I thought about London I think of uh, the London of um, Mrs Dalloway Virginia Woolf's great novel it's more following a pattern or a methodology that she sets up of describing the streets and what it feels like to move around the streets but I did look up certain facts like although they're difficult to pin down exactly but you'll get numbers of of cameras per square mile in London and it just is incredible. There's a sequence in the novel where Paul, the father, is walking towards his workplace, Scotland Yard. People think he's been followed by all these cameras. He's not. He's just been accidentally picked up on most of them. You know, it has no meaning that most of the surveillance that actually takes place is not even counterproductive Neither is it productive, it's just society watching. It watches so much that it couldn't even sift out what is important and unimportant in our lives. And you mentioned Virginia Woolf there and the London of Virginia Woolf and she's also referenced in the structure of the book. That's right, yeah. It's called Every Trick in the Book and and there are some pretty obvious little tricks that are played both on the reader, hopefully the reader enjoys that, but also just because, again, it was a, a method thing for writing the book. It was fun to move from one trick to the next. And some of them are so innocuous and uninteresting, so that in a chapter following the family as they go on a demonstration march through London, I think it's about three or four pages where there's no paragraph break. It's trying to express the bulk of people on the march as they walk through the streets and how they fill out the streets. Famously, in one section of Mrs. Dalloway, Mrs. Dalloway walks through the streets and she's discussing with with herself and internally the statues she passes and what their meanings are. And uh, one of the tricks in every trick in the book is that Sophie and Liv, the two 15-year-old and 10-year-old daughter, are walking through London and they say, who's that statue of? And I don't know, you know. (laughs) And then the next one, who's that statue of? And, And eventually Liv does spot Disraeli, Churchill as well, the both know who Churchill is so there was all these sort of little connections but the joke of the structure is that it's broken down exactly the same way as To the Lighthouse Wolf's other great novel and there's little references to that the couple lived in Sky next to a lighthouse at one point and that's a reference to, to the lighthouse but the structure is it's something like 10 chapters then 10 chapters then 13 chapters and To the Lighthouse breaks down as the story of a family and then the second section of To the Lighthouse as time passes you're sort of told the story of their holiday home without them being in it and then the last section is the chapters of what's happening to the family latterly. Well, we'll come back to those tricks in the book. I'll ask you more about those uh, very shortly. But let's stay with that uh, theme of uh, basing fiction on true stories as we speak to Guy, where Guy's debut novel, The Fat of Fed Beasts, was published in 2015, followed by Reconciliation in 2017 and The Faculty of Indifference two years later. He won the London Short Story Prize in 2018 and has been listed for many other awards, including the Bridport, Fish and Edgehill Short Story Prizes. The Peckham Experiment came out earlier this month. Spanning 70 years, the story is told as an internal monologue, a stream of consciousness from the now confused and elderly central character, Charlie. And I started by asking Guy what genre he would say the Peckham Experiment fits into. <laughs> right, so yeah, start off with the tricky one. It's a kind of a blend, I guess, of 
a kind of state of the nation novel. That wasn't how I set out to write it, but I realised halfway through it was acquiring that heft, if you like. I actually went off and read you know, Margaret Drabble's The Ice Age, which is an absolutely classic state of the nation novel in the 1970s when Much of Mine is set. But it's a state of how did we get to this point? So there's a lot of history in there. And yes, at one level, it's a historical novel. It's about the 1930s, 1960s, the 1980s. There are various kind of key moments throughout most of the last century that drive the story and drive the experience of the protagonist. It's um, a very ambitious novel. I mean, you're spanning what, 60, 70 years. Is this a novel that you've always wanted to write or did it, it come out of nowhere? It's quite different from my other books, which tend to be much, much less directly focused on kind of real events, if you like, almost allegorical, and much more focused in time. The initial trigger for this was very clear. It was Grenfell. That unlocked in me something that is perhaps personal in a way that some of my other books haven't been. I've spent 30 odd years working in local government. So for me, Part of the horror and the tragedy of Grenfell, part of the shock that I felt was that I knew, not necessarily the individuals, but I knew people who did jobs like that. I knew people who had done deals with property developers over the years because that's how you got housing built or rebuilt. This was a world in which I worked. That's not in any way to excuse or exonerate any of the people involved. Part of the shock was just realising just how badly organisations that I knew quite well responded to what was such a clear exposure of their failings. And that was horrifying. So part of me was going, how on earth did we get to this situation? Some of the people involved, you know, and we've heard their testimony at the public inquiry, were cynical and they knew what they were doing was wrong. They were covering it up as they went. But a lot of them weren't. A lot of them were part of a broader system that was pushing them to do what they did. So the novel turns in a way on how do people who are themselves imperfect and have very mixed motives operate successfully or not successfully or with any integrity or no integrity within a system that pushes them towards cutting corners, towards corruption, which is at the heart of the book. Your question, you know, is it is it a book I've always been born to write, as it were? Well, no, but it, it's a book that I spent 30 years being prepared for, I think, and came out as something of a raw and then had to spend an awful lot of time reworking and trying to control the material that I'd generated. And let's perhaps rewind then, given that talk of High Rise, to the title, The Peckham Experiment. Mm -hmm. This is a real thing. The trigger for the novel was specifically around housing and Grenfell. But that was bringing questions home to me via memories, very faint memories, in my case, of Ronan Point disaster that happened in the 1960s. And that mix of motives and the sort of the need to complicate stories. So one of the stories about housing is in an attempt to clear the slums and create a new paradise we built a lot of terrible things that we then had to knock down and rebuild that's a huge oversimplification there's a parallel story about the welfare state as a whole that goes it was born out of this magical moment in 1945 and has been in decline ever since of course there was an awful lot of stuff going on before and since and during that doesn't fit that really neat 
narrative arc, if you like. And one of the key things was around the Peckham experiment, which is based in a building that is literally around the corner from where I live. And there is this glass and steel and concrete palace just off Queen's Road, Peckham. And it housed something that called itself the Peckham experiment that was explicitly an experiment before the Second World War in how you could promote, they wouldn't have used the word, but holistic well-being. The two doctors who ran it had a view that health was not about the absence of disease. It was a positive maturing of the human organism. I'm using their words. And what they were setting out to do was to identify the conditions in which that maturing could happen and indeed be promoted. They set up this place in which you could, if you lived within a mile of it, and you could afford to pay the subscription, use it. It was a social centre. It had a beautiful swimming pool, a gym, space for meetings, self-organised clubs arose. It was a big social and health centre. Plus, they offered lots of clinics and they gave everybody, every family, an annual health check, which was obligatory. You know, at one level, this is this is a paradisal image. And for the two boys, the twins at the heart of my novel, it is a kind of paradise. You know, you imagine it, you're a working class kid. Suddenly here is this free swimming pool and bicycles and roller skates and ping pong tables and, and space to play and whatever. You can just go whenever you like. At another level, there were some things about the whole thing, well, which raised questions for us with the benefit of 70 years of hindsight. So the whole focus on the family means that there was really no space for anything other than the nuclear family of mothers and fathers and children. And my narrator turns out to be gay. And clearly, there is nowhere in the biologist's model of what a healthy human organism is that allows for you to be homosexual. Because if you're homosexual, you are by definition not there to raise children in a, in a nuclear family. So there are issues like that. There's the whole question that there's a subscription, which was controversial when immediately after the war, the NHS is born. Obviously, you know, the fundamental thing that we all know about the NHS is that it's free. So health services, however utopian, however progressive in their instincts that charge people, ran directly counter to the politics of the NHS. And it didn't help, in a sense, that they were quite explicit, that they were charging because they wanted the better sort of working class people who could afford to pay. So it was a real initiative. It was massively interesting to policymakers at the time. And then it got shut down for the war. They reopened it after the war, but it got shut down within five years again because it ran counter to the spirit of the time. So it's a kind of metaphor for a kind of lost paradise, but a very complicated paradise for my characters. Fast forward 40-odd years into the 90s, I was working at Southwark Council. The building was by then owned by the council. It had been used for offices and a health centre and so on. They sold it for private development to turn it into flats and used the money to invest in what's called the Peckham Pulse, which is a an attempt to create an integrated leisure and health facility where there is a swimming pool and there are doctor's surgeries on site. And it's like the wheel had turned and reinvented itself as if this was a kind of radical new proposition. It just struck me that it was a perfect place to set this novel. So Charlie, my narrator, winds up 
buying a flat within the centre and that's where he's sitting when the novel takes place. And Charlie, you mentioned there, he's a very distinctive character with a very distinctive voice. Mm. How did you find him? A gift. It's really interesting. When I started writing the book, I thought I was writing JJ, the other brother's story. And in a way it is. But the key thing about JJ is that he withdraws. He is utterly committed to his ideals. And when they are compromised, he retires early, he withdraws. And one of the big strands in the book is Charlie's ruminations on whether that's right or wrong and how much he feels guilty because he doesn't have the same kind of principles. So Charlie took over. It's quite hard to write a blank, unbending narrator. I had some sort of key issues outlined very early, but I didn't have a story. When Charlie just kind of elbowed his brother aside in my head and started rambling and ranting and showing off and whatever, it came alive as a story, as a, as a kind of a human story about brothers. And it's great fun. It might be hard to read sometimes because he can't stick to topic and he will veer between decades in the middle of a sentence. But that is, is hugely enjoyable to write. And then I produced lots and lots of that. And then, of course, the job is to shape that, to make that into a novel, not just a rant. There are some rants within it, but they have to be shaped into a story. Yeah, rants within it. Is this a political book? I think it's a very political book, but with, I hope, the kind of underlying kind of reminder that these things are more complicated than they are ever allowed to be when they're boiled down into political positions. So... The commitment to eradicating the appalling housing conditions in London after the war is genuine. And I hope that that rage and the kind of later reactions to politics that go on throughout it come from a place of genuine kind of outrage, both mine and, and the characters. But they're complicated, I hope, by being in a novel that shows that the people who hold those views entirely genuinely also do other things that are deeply disloyal and which are criminal, frankly, or skating very close to being criminal, but with the best of intentions. And The Peckham Experiment by Guy Ware is published by Salt Publishing. We're speaking on Bookmark today to Ian Hudd about his novel, Every Trick in the Book. Ian, I said I was going to ask you about those tricks, and uh, mm. I will know there's quite a few of them uh, in, mm-hmm. in this book. So it gets a bit meta at one stage because you start referencing your other novel, the characters in the other novel. I mean, that's a kind of little in-joke. Mm-hmm. I, I believe I've asked younger people, um, and I believe they're called Easter eggs. It's for someone who's read the other book just to enjoy well, let's go through them and you can just say a little bit about each one. So there's redactions as well, so large chunks of text that have black lines. Through. Mm. And in that sense, the the numbering system within it, although two tricks are played about the numbering system of the chapters, one of them is that it looks like a report or like a set of guidelines, and that just grew out of my research into the actual undercover police officers. They, they would obviously write reports on, on their uh, targets. They would also have sets of guidelines that were set out, like, and it was almost like business speak, you know, it was 1.1.1, remember to, you know, one of them was probably remember not to get into a relationship with your uh, target, but um, there would be a caveat to that one, I suppose. So there's the redactions that the cross mm. You've also got asterisks by some names. Uh-huh, that's right. Um, I don't know if I can go into that. <laughs> that would be a real spoiler. That would perhaps be a spoiler, but that, that is there. There's blank pages. 
There are blank pages because the house has gone quiet. It's a description of a evening in the family's life, and I just wanted a moment of stillness and quiet before actually we travel into the final stage of travelling into the heart of this family in which we are given direct access to their thoughts as they all fall asleep. And there is a change in the colour of the pages. Which is the evening getting darker and darker. <laughs> and there are various things that you do as a writer. So there are different languages often on the page as mm. well. You And you address the, the reader directly as mm-hmm. well. That's right. I don't directly uh, address the reader. The, the narrator does. Yes. Whoever the narrator suddenly is because there has been a voyeuristic eye on this family the whole time and finally we're getting to hear directly from that narrator. So one of the ultimate tricks is that the reader is being forced to do things by the narrator that they might not want to do. Yep, don't say any more about that. It's a difficult book to talk about at length without mm. giving spoilers away. There is also a lot of contemporary cultural references littered throughout the book. Mm. That was more than just about setting it in a particular period. Mm. I mean, you've chosen those references very carefully. In fact, whenever I find, uh, during the editing process, whenever I found an anachronism, you know, something that was out of its time, I was like, why did I, you know, (laughs) why, why did that get in there? Tidying up a couple of them was one of the, um, it didn't have to be too heavily edited, but that was one of the things we had to do. But there was so much going on that year. There's so much going on every year, but there was specific things going on. That was the time that people remember that students and other activists were kettled outside Parliament for six, seven hours of a, one Saturday evening, and YouTube's a great sort of like you, they're watching uh, clips of the news from 2011, 2012, obviously about the undercover police operation coming to light, fed into the reference points. And yeah, I do, I use like reference points a lot. And when I find one that really suits my themes and uh, suits the writing process, then I'm, I'm overjoyed. And uh, a question that I asked Guy, coming back to you, is it a political book? Yeah, it is a political book. This book was written mostly last year, and certain things that happen in the book have greater resonance now that we know about certain things about the downfall of Dame Cressida Dick. One of the most upsetting and, and disturbing parts of plot developments in the book was written before the Child Q case came to light and other cases of uh, under 16 year olds being strip searched by Met Police officers without there being a chaperone or other person present so I mean who wouldn't be opposed to that it it beggars belief that the officers thought they were doing the right thing so that if it's political to believe that yeah I am political in the sense that I believe in civil liberties and I believe in the rule of law as well. It's possible that what we've seen in the Met Police and even by their own admission these days, they've kind of lost the way. Well, let's hear your second choice of music now, which is Frownland by Captain Beefheart. Why this one? I was allowed a piece of uh, Captain Beefheart music, <laughs> so I chose the very shortest one because um, it's very, uh, Frownland comes from an album called Troutmass Replica, which is extremely challenging music. 
And um, I wanted to write a challenging book that challenged people's ideas about all sorts of things. And also I wanted it to make people laugh because of the absurdities of both the actual realities of the undercover policing operations, which I still think were to be shown achieved anything. But I wanted to take it to certain absurdist levels and one of them is that the undercover police officer's undercover identity is predicated on him being a huge Captain Beefheart fan. Also, there's a section in which, as many of the undercover police officers got out of their domestic situations by pretending to have uh, mental breakdowns and and sort of go off to hospital, this happens in the plot of uh, this book. But during his time in the psychiatric ward, which happens because of an administrative error, uh, an absurd administrative error, means that he's actually put into a psychiatric ward and fed a lot of psychotropic drugs that eventually start affecting him adversely. He has a very strange hallucination about Frownland being the advert music for Poundland, the high street shop. It just makes me laugh to think that Poundland would ever use uh, this piece of music for an advert. My smile is stuck I cannot go back to your Frownland My spirit's made up Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio. With Heifer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876. Our And we're speaking on Bookmark today to Ian Hood about his novel, Every Trick in the Book. Ian, you've spoken about how the novel is about identity and what happens when you assume another person's identity. Mm. And there is a line in the novel, being undercover has left him with no personality. Mm-hmm. You explain right. that. When uh, I was starting to get some feedback on the book from from book bloggers, etc., one of the most astute bloggers said that he's been undercover for so long that he doesn't know who he is anymore. He is kind of the guy that loves Captain Beefheart and wants... Um, he's, he's, he's been involved in a, a whole bunch of different activist activities and, and he actually enjoyed Hunt Saboteur activities and uh, GM crop trampling, you know, and um, the, he's lost. There's no home for him to go to anymore. He's gone native, I think, is, is in the parlance of that world, being undercover. One of the things you sort of discuss, if you know, is it an opportunity to create another identity if you didn't like the original mm-hmm. yeah, personality? Yeah, keep or moving. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah, keep moving through them. Well, at the end up, of course, in some senses, he is reverting to type. There's a joke in the book about the insensitivity of the opinions expressed because in some senses he is still the copper that he always was. He's not the sensitive dad. Um, He cares for his daughters, but he doesn't care for his daughter's political awareness. It's got to look beyond the double bluff fraud. He doesn't know whether he is that dad, the sensitive activist dad, or whether he's still the copper that he's supposed to be. He's drilled by a, a senior officer about his Captain Beefheart 
persona and other countercultural things that he would naturally know in his life. But at one point, it's demanded of the plot that the Sarge says to him, you know, you're a, what is it, tofu munching wokarati? Uh, the latest parlance, it wasn't then, but is now. And the Sarge is saying to him, remember who you are. This is your persona. You love Captain Beefheart. You love jazz, you know, rock fusion, blah, blah, blah. And then in another part of the plot, the Sarge is drilling him, saying, you're one of the Met's finest. You love the Queen and she loves you and you are the establishment and we have to be against the walls that keep the hordes from civilization. So it's utterly perplexing for him as a human being. And one of the things you do look at, which I suppose hasn't been explored because of all kinds of confidentiality and privacy reasons, the effect on the children of finding out that their dad wasn't who they thought he was. Yeah, and of course they turn out to be utterly blasé about it. They think in a, 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 that was a little pop at celebrity culture um, and doorstepping culture. The mother at one point is uh, talking to someone and she's saying, no, the kids just it washes off their backs because they think everybody's doorstepped eventually. That wasn't me trying to investigate the psychology of a 15 and a 10-year-old girl. That was me taking a pop at celebrity culture and um, doorstepping culture and tabloid culture, which I find beneath... (laughs) There is no lower contempt I could have for it. You do look at the effect on the wife as well and whether what happened, given the intimacy of their relationship without giving too much away, was state rape is a word that, Mm. phrase that is used. It's described two different ways and both of them are in the research materials that some activists have subsequently described as state rape. Even the Met admitted, I think, false representation. I think that's what it was because... Well, let's not go there to try and justify that those words, but yeah, both of those descriptions are in the book. And who brings up the matter of state rape is quite an unusual person. Thank you, Ian. Well, let's stay with that. That theme of identity, really, as we speak to Sophie White. Sophie White is a writer and broadcaster. Her first three books, Recipe for a Nervous Breakdown, Filter This and Unfiltered, have been bestsellers and award nominees, described by Marion Keyes as such fun, gas, clever stuff, and by Sophie's mum as very good of its type. Her best-selling memoir, Corpsin, was shortlisted for an Irish Book Award and the Michael Day on Non-Fiction Prize. Where I End came out last month. It focuses on a highly dysfunctional small family who live on an island and is infused with an overwhelming sense of dread. I have to say I loved it. When I spoke to Sophie, I asked her if the island in the book was based on a real island. It is, in terms of its geography, somewhat based on a real island here in Ireland called Inishman, and it is off the west coast of Ireland. But, I mean, it is so um, loosely based. I mean, Inishman is a wonderful place. I adore Inishman. It's quite a small island. You know, only a few hundred people live there full time. But it's a really special place. And the island in the book is obviously quite a dark place. So I would hate anyone to think that it is totally based on Inishman. But Inishman is like an interesting island for us here in Ireland because it's inspired a lot of literature. J.M. Singh, a great Irish writer, loved Inishman and made the trip there a lot during his career. It's just a very unique place. 
And so I borrowed a little bit from the geography of Inishman for the island in the book. And I did go there, took video and took pictures and made notes of some of the things that ended up in the book. Things like the cement-free walls, they're very common in Ireland, these stacked walls. They're particularly common there on Inishman. Yeah, it felt like you knew that island very well. I mean, it's described in detail. There's a sort of bleak, ugly beauty about it, you know, like this tooth rising out of the sea. But it felt that you knew exactly where everything was. Yes, absolutely. And it's funny because the story for Where I End kind of started in my head when I was on honeymoon and I went to Inishman for my honeymoon. So that was 10 years ago. Inishman, in reality, is very, very beautiful. And it has, just like the island in the book, it has kind of a low part of the island where there's an almost tropical beach. And then it rises and ends in these incredibly sheer cliffs looking out into the Atlantic. It's just a wild place, you know. And it's, But the community that's there now, like, oh my God, I was welcomed with open arms. They even... Um, added me to their WhatsApp group, all the people who go sea swimming there, because I love sea swimming. And when I first got there on my research trip, you know, literally just getting chatting to the fabulous woman who runs the shop and the man who ran my B&B, they were like, yeah, come on into the WhatsApp group and we'll let you know anytime we're going swimming. So I had companions and it's just a really special place. Like, it's fantastic. I feel kind of guilty because I feel a bit like they're going to read this book and be like, what? <laughs> um, but I, I'm, it's a place that uh, spurs the imagination, so I'm sure they won't be surprised. And it sort of defies genres, this novel. What, what genre, how would you describe it? I suppose I think of it as literary fiction with a disturbing heart. Lots of people have been kind of mentioning horror, and I certainly love horror myself, but I read really widely. So, you know, I think there's a lot of influences from different writers. So if your listeners are thinking, oh, I hate horror, don't be put off. I don't think it's horrifying. (laughs) I think it might be somewhat twisted. (laughs) Yes, no, don't be put off. There's a lot that you don't say that you leave to the imagination deliberately. There's a figure at the centre of it who we glimpse from time to time, you do you do describe, but we still don't really know what they look like. You know, you tell us just enough, so there's a lot left to the reader's imagination. Sure, I think you're um, referring to Elon, who's the main character. I was quite a conscious decision not to describe how Elon looks because I suppose the novel is told from her perspective, and I really wanted to have that sense of us inhabiting her as she goes about her days and she is a character whose your feelings about her may shift through the reading of the novel. I suppose it was deliberate that I didn't want to tell the reader too much about what to think of Elin. I wanted people to come to her. Certainly several readers have told me, you know, that they were very much on her side throughout the novel and I love to hear that. It was definitely my aim and then I suppose when it comes to the novel's denouement they maybe change their minds a little bit about her but she is kind of spectral even though she is an absolutely flesh and blood character. But yeah, that was a conscious decision on my part because other characters are described very rigorously and so she is a contrast that by leaving it to the reader's imagination you know we we go to places that perhaps uh, you know you wouldn't have taken us 
anyway because we're trying to fill in those gaps as well as trying to work out how reliable she is. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Like she certainly looks a certain way in my head. I know what she looks like to me, but I'm interested. I mean, did you have any features in mind when you were thinking of her? I was concentrating on her skin, really. That was the the kind of, yes, (laughs) I couldn't, but I kept it kept shifting. I couldn't pin it down, but there was something uncomfortable that I couldn't quite put my finger on. Mm, well, I'd like to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> so that's obviously what you want to do in terms of leaving some things up to the reader because they will fill in these gaps in ways that you hope they might. So you're second, sure. second guessing them all the time. You must sort of piecing out that information, not too much. Yeah, not too much. I think it's always hard as the writer to know that you are giving enough, for example. That's why, like, I obviously I find writing such a collaborative process because I have a wonderful editor who worked on this book with me, Lisa Cohen. And, you know, as soon as I take the first draft to her and also Sarah Davis-Goff, who's also my editor at Tramp Press, that's when I can start to hammer things down in a more definite way Um, and I tend when I'm writing to write longer in first drafts and then come back my mode is to let it all get out into the first draft and then that's when I start making more decisions about if I'm giving too much or my feedback will be like oh no we need more here that's the particular magic of writing I suppose unsettling works of fiction leaving the gap because obviously the horror is in the blankness and I find that in the films and books that I love that are potentially unsettling works it is always in what we don't see I mean it's such a famous motto now really harking back to Jaws by Steven Spielberg like famously the shark is barely seen and it's funny because like it was kind of budgetary (laughs) constraints that I think sort of uh, inspired that but like obviously we do the work as the readers and as the watchers that's why I love reading so much actually and I just love that we'll all interpret something so vastly different just with the same piece of work so it's definitely something that I try to pare back on when I'm finishing a piece. This is your literary debut. The the novels that you've had before, very different to this. Is this has this one always yeah. been in your back pocket? Well, I don't know. Like I kind of find myself so my previous novels are very firmly like commercial women's fiction. They're actually mostly rom coms. And I've also written nonfiction. I, as a reader, love all of those, but I love literary fiction as well. And I think I did have it in my head, oh, I would like to try a different style but for me the story has to present itself first and then I'll make the decision of what kind of genre where will this story fit and almost the kind of voice of characters comes to me with my commercial fiction I write a lot about the collision of like life and technology so my first novel was about a girl who wanted to be an Instagram influencer and she decides to fake a pregnancy to get big on Instagram. So that's obviously like firmly comedy, but kind of dark comedy. And then when the story of Elin and her island sort of started to take shape in my mind, I mean, it just is a story that demands a completely different style. And as I said, I just read so widely, like there's really no genre that I'm, I don't love. So I was 
excited to have a crack at literary fiction for sure, but also it's not such a conscious decision for me. I always think that the kind of position of a book comes later. That's for my publishers. I just write the way the story demands to be written. And you mentioned your publishers there. You're working with Tramp Press, which a relatively small publisher, independent publisher. How's that been? Absolutely fantastic. So this is the second book I've done with Tramp Press. The first was called Corpsing, My Body and Other Horror Shows. And that was nonfiction. That's a collection of essays and is somewhat gothic, as the title suggests. I'd always had in my head, uh, ever since Tramp Press were born um, about 10 years ago, I'd always followed all of the books they brought out because they just work on such fascinating projects. And it had definitely been one of my absolute blue sky wishes to work with them. So when they wanted to work with me on Corpsing, I was was so excited. And they are very selective about what they work on. So it's obviously, it was such a huge kind of vote of confidence that they wanted to work with me. I couldn't believe it. I suppose because they bring out less work each year, there is such attention to detail and there's such a wonderful collaboration with them. You know, I also work with a different publisher. I work with Hachette for my commercial fiction. And I actually love that, you know, it's delineated and they have like such brilliant collaborators there and Hachette as well. My editor, Kira Dorley, is just phenomenal and has taught me so much about fiction writing. So, I mean, I just feel very spoiled, really. I'm just so lucky, you know. And Where I End by Sophie White is published by Tramp Press. We've been speaking on Bookmark today to Ian Hood about his novel Every Trick in the Book, published by Renard Press. So, Ian, what's next for you then? There is actually a third book written. It's being prepared to be sent to the publisher, so we don't know if it will be the next book, but I'm I'm hopeful, and it's called My Book of Revelations. <laughs> Another one with book in the title. Yeah, that happened almost by accident, but that's that's where we've got to that. It's a writing thing. It's just it makes it easier. And also, I do like the sort of joke element of certain things. So if you're going to call your book's book, give it three of them then and push the joke along. Yeah, so my book of Revelations, a, a, a novel about the night of the millennium when we were all supposed to be thrown into some sort of Stone Age society because of the Y2K bug. And a question we ask all our featured guests on Bookmark, what are you reading at the moment? A book that actually feeds into the reading that I need to do for my own writing at the moment. So it's uh, Tom McCarthy's The Making of Incarnation, which is a book about human beings' uh, relationship to technology. And obviously writing a book about the Y2K bug and how technology has suddenly suffused every element of our chances of survival. That's a, a great novel. It's a great novel in and of itself, and it's also feeding into my own writing. Thanks, Ian. We'll come back to you in just a moment for your last choice of music. But a heads up that our next show, which is the Christmas show, can you believe it? We're at that time of year already, has a classics theme. Our featured guest is historian and classicist Harry Sidebottom, talking about his new non fiction book, The Mad Emperor. Heliogabalus and the Decadence of Rome. Caroline Vaut talks about her book Exposed, the Greek and Roman Body, and Jan Parker talks about studying the classics, and in particular her book The Iliad and the Odyssey, The Trojan War, Tragedy and Aftermath. But we'll sign out now in with your last choice of music, which is Let Down by Radiohead. Why this one? We are given access in the book to the inner thoughts of the main characters, and when we're inside the thoughts of 
Paul, the father of the family, he's thinking about the first time that he felt nervous about his double identity and that nervousness, anxiety gave itself expression and, and what it is is he's, he's on holiday in Crete but late at night suddenly the song Letdown comes on radio or he's playing it on a CD or whatever and for some reason he thinks that it's finally getting to him that he's leading this double life and that it's untenable in some ways but he hears Letdown and he thinks oh god I'm going to throw myself from this third story window and what Paul is thinking about is how that was the first expression ever of, you know, that he was doing the wrong thing and that the whole setup of his life, there was something fundamentally wrong with it. Cambridge 105 Radio.